Hey, welcome back, peeps. It's Noggin Notes, and I'm Jake Wiskirchen. Today's guest is Lawrence Sprung. He sits on the board of directors for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. He is a wealth management advisor and an all-around good dude who works really hard to help others. I learned a lot, as I always do, from these interviews, and I think you will as well. We talk a lot about the stresses of financial management, but really about how to navigate those and how money isn't everything. So I hope you enjoy this. I hope you share it around. I hope you also give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcasts because that's how other people get to find our podcasts and that's how we go on and make Earth better. So appreciate that. Appreciate our sponsors. As always, we have Audible. If you've not checked out Audible, please go to audibletrial.com slash notes for your free 30-day trial. And along with that 30-day trial, you get one free audio download. You get access to their completely unmatched library of content. And we think you're going to enjoy it because we enjoy it. It helps feed your noggin and keep it healthy, which is the point of our podcast and probably most podcasts, I would say. So on behalf of Zephyr Wellness, we thank you also. If you haven't become familiar with Zephyr Wellness, which is the company that I co-own here in Northern Nevada. Please check out Zephyr Wellness on YouTube to find some of the videos that I make, which are just kind of full of information that people, I don't know, I think they find it interesting and maybe applicable to their lives. Also follow us on Instagram or Facebook as well. And uh, if you're in the Twitter world, you can find us there. You can find me there at Jake Whisk. Uh, I don't tweet everything just about mental health, but a lot of it has to do with that. And then also, if you're interested, please go check out WTTA.org slash love. That's walkthetalkamerica.org slash love. WTTA is the acronym. And you can get a free and anonymous mental health screening. Pass that around to your friends. Tell them that it exists because it's a great way for people to check in on their own mental functioning to see if maybe something's a little too off kilter and you need to go seek professional counseling for it. So... On behalf of all our sponsors, we thank you for listening. Please share this around. Don't let it get locked up in your head, because if it is, then nobody's benefiting. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Lawrence Sprung. Have a good one. Well, listening audience, thanks for downloading our content yet again. Today we have Lawrence Sprung. How are you, sir? I'm awesome, Jake. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. We appreciate it. Uh, it's been uh, several attempts to connect, and finally we are here, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, you do wealth advisement for a living, and with that as the very limited introduction, I want you to introduce yourself the rest of the way, and we can take off. Yeah, sure. So I'm the uh, the founder and lead wealth advisor at Midland Financial. We're a wealth management uh, firm. We're part of an organization that uh, oversees uh, over $16 billion in assets as of uh, today. And uh, we help people become and remain financially independent. We're located in New York on Long Island. Uh, but uh, with that being said, we work with people all over the country. So uh, predominantly our clients are busy professionals or retirees who basically want to spend time doing the things they love or they have to do. Uh, and we help them design, develop, and implement a financial plan and do all the things that they don't have the time to do and uh, report to them on a regular basis. Uh, more importantly, and why I'm here today is uh, I also happen to sit on the national board for the American American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, 
and uh, mental health is something that is extremely important to me and my family. We lost my brother-in-law, Keith Milano, back in 2004. Uh, he died by suicide. And uh, since that time, my wife and I have been staunch advocates for mental health and uh, raising awareness and funds for that cause. Uh, in his memory, uh, we created the Keith Milano Memorial Fund at AFSP. And we've raised in excess of $1.7 million for the cause, in addition to me sitting on the national board, which um, I, I'm involved with the finance and the uh, investment committee there. So uh, always happy to talk to folks about mental health. I think it's probably one of the most underserved and under talked about areas. And it's something that is probably one of the most important areas that we should be having conversations about. So thank you for, uh, you know, continuing that conversation and keeping that alive. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. There's a lot there that I'd like to cover. I think um, one thing that it's easy for us, those of us who are close to the mental health realm, and I'll, I'll put a pretty big umbrella over that because it can cover all sorts of things from physical well-being to um you know, suicide prevention and awareness and interventions and all sorts of things. But I think for those of us who are close to the profession, as it were, it's really easy to see what gets tossed around on social media and say, oh, people are waking up and they're starting to take better care of their mental health and, and they're not. And I've had enough conversations recently to understand that not just through my own practice here in northern nevada but also through the podcasts and so forth that there's there's just a lot of folks out there who truly don't understand the connections the the basic mechanics like what does it look like to take care of one's mental well-being to even get an appointment billing insurance you know all that stuff so i guess we'll start there what what have you learned along your journey uh, toward toward this uh, awareness campaign and, and by the way a million bucks is nothing to sneeze at i mean that's that's some pretty good fundraising uh over a, a decade and a half or so a little more than that now so um tell tell us a little bit about like some eye-opening experiences that you've had and some major uh, i guess revelations that you'd like to share with people Yes, I mean, I, I, I think the first and the foremost was following my brother-in-law's uh, passing. Um, you know, I had never been in a position where I knew somebody who died by suicide uh, prior to that personally. And, you know, to some degree and some extent, I knew mental health was a big issue and concern, but I never really put two and two together that someone could die from mental illness or depression. And, you know, that was a huge eye opener for me. And when we started, when I started looking at some of the numbers um, and why I'm saying the numbers is I, I was always ph philanthropic to a degree. I always did work for different organizations. I lost my mother, uh, my mother at a very young age uh, to breast cancer. So I had supported, you know, various breast cancer and the American Cancer Society. And at that time I was looking at numbers and I looked at breast cancer and breast cancer took 36,000 women's lives in uh, back in 2004. And when you looked at suicides at that same time, it was roughly the same number. It was about 36,000 right. lives were lost to suicide. And right. I said, whoa, whoa, I could not believe that the numbers were identical yet. Breast cancer was getting funding in the billions and, you know, uh, suicide prevention in the millions if they, if they were lucky. So that was a huge eye-opener for me. And I, I think you're right. I think a lot has changed in the last 
16, 17 years for the better uh, in terms of mental health and, and people willing to talk and it coming out of the darkness and not being as big a, of, of a stigma uh, issue. But we definitely have a long ways to go. And I think part of the problem is, to, to your point, people don't really understand. I think people are more aware today about what mental health is and, and that we should be taking better care of our mental health and we should be looking out for things. But I, I don't really think people really have a good understanding or handle on, well, what does that mean? What should I be doing? You know, we know what we should be doing to prevent heart disease, right? We should be eating right, not smoking, things of that nature. But I don't think that just, there's been a great job as far as what should we be doing for our mental health? And maybe that's the next step. Maybe that's the next 10 or 15 years. But, uh, you know, the biggest eye opener for me at the beginning and, and the biggest change I've seen is on the stigma side, where back in when my brother-in-law passed, the number of people that came up to us and said, you know, hey, um, you know, I kind of know what you're going through. My aunt, my uncle, my brother, Joe, you know, they, they died by suicide. People think it was a heart attack or a car accident. And now people are a little bit more upfront. And I think a lot of that has to do with us and you, people like us who are having the conversations and talking about it. And also some of those people who are, you know, looked up to, whether rightfully so or not, athletes and actors and actresses uh, who are coming out and saying, you know, I suffered, I suffer. And I've gotten help and, you know, it's really put me on the right track, like the Michael Phelps of the world and, you know, putting a, a shining a light on it has uh, really raised the profile and I think help things. But it's still a very difficult thing if your family's going through it to navigate it, find where the right places to go and the right resources and how to, you know, navigate that process for a, for a loved one is uh, still extremely difficult. And hopefully, you know, over the next 10, 15 years, that'll change as well. Yeah, I think that you you make a couple of good points there. One is that I guess it's rooted in this idea of um, intangibles, right? So f physical health is, is quantifiable. We can touch it. We we can study it. And and with uh, with behavioral health, loosely termed, all we can do is observe people's actions, and we don't really get an opportunity to look inside their heads and you know analyze their their psyches. Um, not with any great degree of confidence, at least that we like the way we can with physical well-being, and from that emerges this. Uh, you you alerted to darkness, and the AFSP has an out of the darkness walk annually, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but the the idea is that mental wellness and mental illness, uh, conversely, are often kind of in the shadows, right? Because we can't quantify them, because we can't touch it, can't see it. And it makes it really difficult to address. Even when we sort of suspect that somebody's got something going sideways, we can't point to it. And, and it leaves everybody sort of wondering what to do next. And so to your other point about knowing how to care for oneself, you know, to combat obesity or heart disease or, you know, pulmonary issues, we know how to do that. We avoid cigarettes and smoke and we avoid fatty foods and all that stuff. What do we do with regard to keeping oneself mentally well? And and I think that, I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around, I suppose, and I'll, I'll take some of it because my profession has done a pretty poor job of advertising, honestly. Like we, we tend to live in the shadows. We tend to hide behind confidentiality to a fault and then nothing moves forward. And, and again, to the credit of people like celebrities, like the Michael Phelpses of the world, 
Um, we're starting to push a little bit further out, but we don't have the the precise granular steps to take, right? So exercise is nice. Um, you know, being honest with oneself is good. Surrounding yourself with uh, friends and neighbors who can give you feedback. For, for me, one of the baselines that I use is, you know, how's your emotional functioning? Know, know what your brain is telling you and ride through the emotional waves. But I guess... Um, I guess I'm I'm struggling. I don't like to complain without a solution, and I'm not sure what the solution is, other than maybe a mass marketing campaign. And maybe this is where somebody like you, who's involved at such a high level with such a large, far-reaching organization, can contribute. Do we maybe need to just do some PSAs and a coordinated ad campaign to say, "Here's what you do to prevent," right? Cause like we're we're great at the at the intervention and the reaction stuff when things go right. badly, but we're not so good at prevention. And one thing that I say regularly is that still under the medical umbrella, mental health, behavioral health, uh, we don't get the pop the hood, check the belts and hoses, preventative care two or three, four times a year like we do in physical care. And that needs to stop. Insurance needs to kick down for preventative treatment. But beyond that, people need to be doing stuff in their daily lives. So what do you, what do you find going on in your life and what, it, what is possible here with regard to the, to the steps we can take? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not a doctor, so I can only tell you from my, you know, anecdotally what I what I see and, and what I think. And, you know, the I, I think one of the issues is the fact that mental health is such a broad topic and there's a lot under that hood that really can f- filter up to mental health. And, right. you know, what helps one person may not help another. Um, what one person may be suffering mental health wise may be very different from another. It's not like heart disease where not a, that it's more simpler, but it's more uh, isolated and specific. You have the heart, you know, if it's diseased or not, and what can be done to prevent it. Whereas now you're talking about the brain, you're talking about emotions, you're talking about a lot of different things under that one umbrella. So I think it makes it a little bit more difficult to say, this is what you should be doing. But I think from, from a very high level overview, I think there are some simple things like uh, exercise, like diet, uh, like having conversations with people and, and talking about how you're feeling and what your emotions are. Um, you know, those are three easy things that no matter where you're falling on that spectrum of mental health, I think that they're very easy to do start today and, uh, you know, would be would be helpful. And probably the fourth thing, which, you know, I think is something that we're all responsible for is, you know, not only for yourself, but keep your eyes and ears out for others and be able to at least identify if something's not right uh, with somebody and be in a position where you're comfortable enough to say something to that individual and bring it to their attention and or go to somebody else if uh, if needed to, uh, you know, make sure that they're either on the right track or get them you know, the assistance or the conversation that they need to, you know, start moving in that direction. Yeah, I see a lot of the the stuff that you listed off there, the the struggles uh, symptomatically, they present as fairly obvious, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, sleeplessness, uh, poor diet, you know, that, that kind of stuff, substance abuse and addiction. And and to me, they, they arise from something deeper that's, that's a little less tangible, a little less... Um, something we can't label and it's it has to do with like self-efficacy or um, personal values meaning existential crises so my question i guess is 
you work in wealth management, you work with financial planning. Um, when I work with folks in the office or we're supervising other folks who work with them, oftentimes we get to a route that's, that's almost too scary to face. Like I've worked this career for X amount of years and I don't know that it's right for me. And it's terrifying to have to make a change like that or, uh, choice of spouse, <laughs> you know, um, things that maybe don't necessarily need abandonment, but they need analysis so that we can adjust accordingly and get good, solid personal value and worth and, and belief in what you're doing contributes to humanity. How often are you having these conversations when you're working with somebody who's, you know, like, I, I, I have this income, I want to retire, I want to be financially independent. Um, but man, it's killing me just to keep doing this job. Like, do, do you encounter that kind of thing where you're like, well, maybe the job isn't right for you? Yeah. I mean, those are areas that we can help in. We can't solve, but we have, you know, strategic relationships with folks that can come in and have a higher level dialogue with that person for, you know, but I think all these things that you were talking about and referring to that add stress, work, spouse, et cetera, you know, they're all things that have to be looked at, evaluated and spoken about along the way. Right. I think what we end up happening in a lot of cases, and we see this a lot, obviously in wealth management, you know, many of uh, the folks that um, how they operated before they came to work with us, for example, uh, is that we get this tendency to be complacent and let things kind of go with the flow and don't really sit, take a step back on a regular basis, review, you know, take a look and evaluate and make changes. And, you know, that could be applied to all those areas that you mentioned below, you know, the, the job, the, uh, the spouse and relationships, certainly with money, you know, you can't just start saving when you're 20 or 30, never look at it and expect to have enough money to retire. It has to be, you know, reviewed, evaluated, and tweaks have to be made along the way. And I think that applies to all those things. And I think we just have to be as humans, a little bit more mindful about taking a look at those things. And, you know, certainly, listen, I have a, my oldest son's going to be entering college in the fall. And, you know, we've had conversations before where, you know, he'll ask me about a specific adult who was complaining about their job, let's say, while we were out. And he, he looked at me and he'll say, you know, why doesn't so-and-so just find another job or find a new career? And, you know, he doesn't understand that, you know, 17, 18 yet that, you know, to some degree, we have this mental block that there becomes a point of no return, right? Where we've been in this career, we've been doing the same thing, we're, we're adept, we're pretty successful. And you know what, if you're not having this, you know, if you're not having the fulfillment that you want, making that change with all the other responsibilities behind you, which is the mortgage, the spouse, the kids, makes it almost a point of no return. Um, so my conversations with him have been around his choice uh, for college and making sure that when he picks and looks at what his career is going to look like, it's not just making that career choice and, and looking at that today. It's looking out to the future of how you're going to use that degree later on. And again, it's not something that he should choose today and never look at again. Every year or so, he should reevaluate and take a look and take stock as far as you know the paths he's on. And is this something that he can see himself in for the next five or 10 years? So I think overall, to kind of answer your question directly, I think it's something that we have a tendency not to evaluate regularly. 
we do it with other things, but we don't do it with our own personal, uh, you know, things, items. And we should be reviewing, taking stock and, and evaluating and making changes along the way because it, it would make things easier, certainly. Well, it's hard, right, to, to constantly work at self-improvement. And I think it's easier just to slip into habit and routine. And, and I hesitate to use complacency, although that's kind of what ends up happening. And when you get complacent, uh, you tend to get rigid. And rigidity breeds uh, an, a perceived inability to make change. And I love that you said mental block about it because I think that it, I think it is a mental block that you can't start over because you can. It's just going to take some sacrifice. And if you've led a several years worth of your life of not necessarily making those sacrifices and becoming routine and habitualized, then everything perceptively appears much, much more challenging. And, and I, I guess that the, I guess the thing I'd want people to hear is that you're not stuck, right? You're not stuck. It might be painful. It might be uncomfortable to change, but ultimately the long-term gain would be much more advantageous if you're doing something you enjoy. And I think to that, to that point about, I love that you said you, you're asking him to evaluate what he wants to do for the next five to 10 years and not 40, right? which, is, right. which is, I think what our parents did is like, you know, you, you go to school, you, you graduate, you get a job, you retire and that's it. And behind the scenes, I don't know, magic happens or something. Um, but long, <laughs> long gone are the days of the, the 30 year corporate job with the pension and the retirement. I mean, unless you're working for government and you got a public employees retirement package, you're probably doing it on your own, which is where you come in. But one of the things that I try to tell youth too, is that I wish we could invert the way that we do undergrad because in grad school, you typically choose a degree path based on a career that you want. Whereas in undergrad, you choose a degree path because it's cool. And then you figure out what career you want later. Right. And if we could, if we could get the, the younger kids who are coming into undergrad for the first time and say, Hey, pick what you want to do for a living. And then the path to get you there will seem a lot more uh, obvious and applicable when you're going through those courses and you're like, I don't know where I'm going to use this. Um, but then you, you know, right in grad school, it's like all the classes seem to matter because perceptively in your head, you can kind of identify what you want to, we want to be when you grow up. And then as adults, you know, to change careers is, it seems challenging, but, but that also seems to be the order of the day these days where people don't stay at the same job like they used to a couple of generations ago. How, how are you, finding that people navigate that kind of uh, turn in their life, whether it's heading into retirement or they're heading into a new career and they're trying to, to stabilize and, and keep their, you know, their lifestyle or whatever it is intact. Yeah. So, I mean, let me, let me touch on the, uh, the educational component first. Please. I I'm, I'm in a complete alignment with you. I think our whole educational system is somewhat backward. We, we expect 18 year olds to kind of figure out what they're going to do for the rest of their lives yeah, right. and then go to school for it. I think it's, I think it's crazy. If anything, you know, I'm more along the lines of, you know, having somebody graduate high school, go find a couple of careers that they're interested in, take a year, try it, try it out, see if they like it. Then maybe go to grad school, uh, to, to undergrad even. And, uh, one of the reasons why we picked the school or my son picked the school he's going to is it's a five-year program where three semesters he's, um, works in an externship. So he's actually a W2 employee, uh, at a company, uh, hopefully in an area that he's interested in to kind 
trying to figure out if this is really where he wants to be. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something that's interesting. And, you know, hopefully he finds a career and hopefully your your listeners find a career that they can be in for the next 20, 30, 40 years and they enjoy it and they're rewarded by doing it. Uh, although that's not the norm these days. If you find something that's right, then that's great. More power to you. Um, but I think you're seeing a lot of this job hopping, uh, so to speak, because people aren't finding the good fit. They're not spending the time up front to find what, where and what their passions are and then finding an employer that they can go um, and fulfill those goals with. And that's why they're seeking new employment or new opportunities because they're just not hitting those benchmarks that they expected. But, you know, like you said, it's not an impossible venture. It's something that certainly can be done. Uh, I, you know, making a, a career change either as a youngster or going into retirement. And I think it's important that, <clears throat> you definitely need to have that financial stability and understanding of how that's going to affect you and your family. Um, And you don't want to make a wrong move because as you get older, the cost of making that wrong move can be extremely more costly because you just don't have the time to recover it. So it's important that if you're going to make the change, the later you are in life, that you do more research up front and make sure that it's something that you're going to be able to sustain. And that either is going to keep you or put you back on the same financial front that you're on, or there's going to be some other non-monetary benefit to you making this change. Cause it doesn't always have to be about money. You know, we tell clients all the time, you know, you look at a risk profile or risk parameter from conservative to aggressive. You have somebody that understands that they should probably be closer to the aggressive side, but fundamentally and mentally they can't handle that to them being more to the conservative side is going to be worth maybe the equivalent of 10 or 15% a year in their mind because they don't have to be as concerned. So then you take, you know, as long as you've done the research, you know what you're dealing with, you play it more conservative because for you, that's going to be a bigger benefit than trying to knock it out of the park, so to speak. So there are certain things that you can do. And this, you know, if you find a career that you're happier in, more fulfilled in, that might be the equivalent of $50,000 a year to you that you might be able to take or want to take that haircut. And you just have to understand what's going to be the outcome by taking that haircut in order to be happy. And is that a trade-off that you're willing to take? Um, so that's, that's a certain, you know, balance that you have to find if you're going to go in that direction. Peace of mind is worth a lot. And I can testify to that because when, uh, my partner and I opened up Zephyr wellness, we sacrificed a ton and our, uh, she wasn't married then she is now, but I was married and my spouse at the time was, um, uh, she was, she was very confident and supportive, but I think she was a little freaked out and her, Salary definitely floated us for a while, and we were very fortunate. But it, I, I still say I can, I could, I make decent money now, but it's nothing compared to what I could make working for, say, the state. But I'm working for somebody else, and I would make the sacrifice every time, every time again, because the the liberty that comes with running your own show is unparalleled. You can't you can't put a price tag on that, and and my piece comes from knowing that. I'm making an impact and I will, I'll have enough to pay my bills. And that's really all I want. I'm not, I'm not interested in buying a jet anytime soon, you know? So 
to your point, I think, you know, being able to evaluate what the worth is to peace of mind in one's life is really, really valuable and super important. And I wonder how often it gets overlooked when we're facing all these pressures. And that's where I want to kind of shift the conversation is I got, I want two things. I got two things to ask and I'll ask them in a certain order. Speaking of pressure and stress, you, you mentioned you have an, an oldest, so I assume you have other children. How many do you yeah, have? Yeah, I have a soon to well, I have a soon to be eighteen year old who's the oldest, and then soon to be fifteen year old, which is my youngest. Both so, boys. So I have two boys. They're uh, five and a half and three and a half. Soon to be six and four. So I'm not where you are. Um, I do, however, work with a lot of adolescents, and I have my entire adult life. And I'm wondering what you're seeing. This is part one of the two-part question. What are you seeing in your children and their friends and their peer groups as it relates to the stress placed upon them to? I'll put this in air quotes that the audience can't see. Choose the career, choose the career path, um, and then all the the financial burden that comes with that because we know tuition's only skyrocketing. And how are they dealing with it? Because this is something that was not present twenty years ago or even ten years ago. The last time I was in grad school, um, and 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 for for me and a lot of my peer group, I'm in my forties now. It was just. Yeah, we'll we'll go. We'll work three jobs to pay for our stuff. We'll take out some loans, maybe get some scholarships, uh, and then at the end, we'll have a job that roughly compensates us well enough to pay off that debt, and then we'll be happy. But it doesn't seem to be that way these days, because the the jobs aren't paying off the student loan debts. The student loan debts are climbing, and then there's a bunch of de- uh, social pressures going al- along with that too. So I'm I'm curious of your take on that right now. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a bit messy, right? And I think it all stems from you know, there there's a couple of things at fault here in my opinion. I think the schools, you know, the perception by most parents are that these schools are schools, educational institutions. I disagree. I think they're great marketing companies and Agreed. great biz, great businesses. Yep. Um and that's the way I look at it. And when it came to my kids, they had the deal, which my wife and I are both products of the state university system here in New York, and we would be willing to pay for them to go to a state university. They come out debt free. But beyond that, there had to be a valid reason for them or for us to pay in excess of that for them to go to a different institution. So for example, if they wanted to go to the University of Miami, not to pick on them, but because they wanted to go to uh, a state that had sunshine and a good football program so they could see football on Saturday and they wanted us to float that extra money, we were not going to do that. Um, My older son is going to Drexel in Philadelphia, which has this externship program. So in that case, we were willing to pay more money because there were definite benefits and we saw what those benefits were. But I think too many times you see parents who are willing to write the check for their student to go to the University of Miami because they don't want to disappoint them. And, you know, I think that that sets us up for a financial disaster, not only from the parents' standpoint, but from the kids, because what did they learn? They learned, well, I could spend more. And then that filters down to the, you know, all areas of their life from that point forward. So I I think where a lot of this has to start is very early on, uh, we hired a college advisor 
uh, my son's uh, sophomore year and basically sat down, told the college advisor what our philosophy was and what our beliefs were. And at first he had some schools on there that were extremely high priced. And we looked at him and said, well, what's the cost benefit? What's going to be the return on investment going there? And he couldn't come up. All right, get mm-hmm. it off the list. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's no return on investment. So I think it has to be looked at from a purchasing decision, just like you would go through a decision-making process when you buy a house or you buy a car, right? You know, in many cases, families do more research and more due diligence when they're buying those items, a car or a house, than they do with their kids' education because they'll say, oh, well, you know what? I'll just take out loans or I'll run up debt. We weren't willing to do that. And I think that you have to come from it from a standpoint of a due diligence process where you're, you're putting that in place. You can't just all of a sudden, middle of junior year, have your son, you know, beginning of junior year, have your son or daughter apply to colleges. And then you start doing the math and understanding because at that point, it's too late. There's not much you can do. You really have to start that planning process early on. And I think you really have to understand the fact that these are businesses and they want your dollars. They're fighting for your dollars, just like everybody else. And, um, you know, it's important and they're fighting harder now because of what's taken place over the last couple of years with the pandemic, et cetera. They, they, you know, many institutions did take a hit with enrollments and revenues, et cetera. And they're, you know, uh, you know, very interested in boosting it up just to give you an example, you know, so a lot of places went, um, you know, agnostic to uh, SATs and ACTs. So people are applying to schools now that they necessarily wouldn't have got into. And the schools are loving it because they get $75, $100, $150 a pop uh, for the application. And in many cases, the application money that they get funds their admissions department for the entire year. So if they can double the enroll, you know, double the number of uh, applications, they basically just got, uh, you know, a hundred percent of their admissions budget went down to the bottom line as profit. So, you know, you got to understand where you're applying. There's got to be a reason for it and there's got to be a methodology behind it. And you know, we have to understand how these decisions today that we're making with our kids or, you know, hopefully the kid, uh, the child or the 17, 18 year old is driving a lot of this decision and they have real reasons um, for doing it. They have to understand why things are being done and what the cost benefit of making those decisions are today and, you know, in perpetuity going in the future. So, Let's stick with this for a second because the second part of my question had to do with you as parents. How are you tolerating your own distresses while watching this process unfold? And then uh, what kind of confidence do you have that when the decision is made, your kid's going to be okay? Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't, to, to be completely transparent, we didn't drive the process at all. All we did was we knew, my wife and I knew that it had been a long time since we went to college. The process had changed and we weren't going to be qualified people to manage that process. And that's why we hired the college advisor. We didn't feel, uh, we didn't have enough faith and confidence in the uh, the local school, the guidance department to drive that that process for us. There are other sure. families that that might work for them. And if they're confident in that, then that's fine. We didn't feel that way. So we hired somebody independent. And basically, it was his job to work with our son uh, and, and work through this process. And essentially, um, we had very little involvement. They met once a week uh, via Zoom, had a conversation. You know, when my son first started the process, he was looking at possibly being an engineer. 
Um, my wife and I didn't see that as a good fit for him, his personality and his nature. And, uh, you know, just kind of naturally, he came around to finally looking at business. Um, and that's where he's going and he, you know, go moving towards and he went through the application process. Um, you know, when many kids were scrambling with um, their essays and whatnot, my son at the beginning of school year was basically ready to apply. Um, so it was pressure free from us. He applied to like 11 or 12 schools. And uh, then it was just sit and wait and see what made the decision and kind of organically the right decision, uh, you know, came came out because it was it was a multifaceted decision for him because it was not only just the school piece but he's also a hockey player so he was looking to continue playing hockey so that was part of the decision making process also and ultimately he ended up choosing Drexel which uh, his mom and I are thrilled with because we think that it's really a good fit for him and we think that the school he ended up choosing was really ultimately the best choice uh, for him out of the 11 or 12 that he applied to. It sounds like you've done a good job with raising your kids to evaluate things from a from a cognitive perspective and not doing it just strictly on emotion or or belief system or perceptions and that kind of thing. How was it going through that process? And I'm speaking kind of like with an ear toward myself because I'm being selfish because it's my podcast and I get to ask these <laughs> questions, but also to to the listening audience who may have younger children. How do you keep the guardrails in place when uh, the the kids want to go grab the shiny object and you have to say, that ah, might not be the best thing for you. Yeah. They you know, listen, it, it depends on the situation and what that shiny object is. Right. So I think that, you know, we're parents, we want to be friends and we want to have relationships with our kids, but at the same time, we're parents, we have to raise, uh, good people and good humans that eventually are not going to be under our roofs. They're going to be out in the world operating on, on their own uh, accord and in their own environment. Right. So we have to put them in the best position possible and be able to say no when it's not really appropriate and point out, you know, maybe not say no, but point out what are the pros and cons of making that decision? Okay. You want to do this. What are you expecting to get out of it? And if it makes sense to spend the money, then why, why are we spending the money and make a case for it? And if not, you know, then why are we doing it? You know, there has to be some type of, of reasoning behind it. Um, you know, if he said to me, you know, one of the conversations we had was, you know, hockey is a very different sport than a lot of other sports, for example, uh, as far as the track to college. If you want to play D1 or in many cases D3 ice hockey, uh, pretty much after high school, you have to go play junior hockey for a couple of years. And typically, you know, unless you're in the top, you know, 1%, you're paying to play and it could be ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 for those years. So, you know, did it cross his mind to go play junior hockey? Absolutely did. Uh, but when he started looking at the fact that he'd probably have an opportunity to go to a D3 school and started looking at the educational components of those D3 schools, he said, why am I going to waste two years of my life to go to X school where I could continue playing hockey to say I could play D3 hockey? It just doesn't make sense. And he came to that realization on his own. We, we helped, you know, talk to him about that. Um, but, you know, if it was a different situation where he had a potential of getting like go to D1 school and get a scholarship, 
then that conversation may have been driven very differently and we may have been supportive of that. Who knows? Um, but, you know, every kid is different and you have to understand what the situation is. And I think you have to steer them in the direction of making these decisions like they would as an adult uh, and, and, you know, looking at it proactively and, and dissecting why are they doing this? What's the ultimate goal and what do they expect to get out of it? And is that worth waiting the time or spending the money? Are your kids on social media? And if so, how long have they been on it? So my kids, I'm trying to think. So my my youngest has been on it longer than my oldest because, you know, the oldest is always the first one. You try to fight that off as long as you yeah. can. Yeah. Um, so I, I think they've been on it for a few, you know, my 17-year-old, maybe four or five years at this point. And, uh, you know, my 15-year-old, two or three at this point. Um, so that, that's certainly – but. You know, that's certainly concerning. And I, I think you might be going in this direction. I think, you know, there's there's pros and cons there. I think a lot of the cons are people, you know, the kids are seeing things in, in a way that uh, they're only seeing the good stuff, not the bad stuff. Um, I think, you know, my oldest son, certainly because of what my wife and I have been through and him, too, uh, with our family situation, you know, he's... Um, sensitive to people who are posting things that may be, um, you know, cries for help. And he's been in situations where he's uh, alerted us to certain situations um, in order to uh, help people. So I, I think, you know, listen, social media, even for adults, has good and bad aspects. And we have to just be a little bit more in tune with, with the, uh, the younger folks to make sure that they're not being steered in the wrong direction from it. it steers a lot of adults in the wrong direction. It, it does, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad you made the point about the you know, only posting positive things because we don't we don't post our warts online. You know, we, we right. post the celebrations, and that can create a warped view of reality for people who are trying to achieve or compare and contrast against what their friends or you know neighbors are doing. How often do you check what they're doing and what they're involved with? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, we're we're keeping an eye on things for them and and making sure that they're not being exposed to things they shouldn't, you know, necessarily be exposed to. But, you know, especially my older guy, you know, he's going to be 18. So, I mean, at this point, if he's if we're not comfortable and confident that he's going to be able to navigate the space on his own and be a good human, then, uh, you know, we, we failed. We didn't do our job. My my 15 year old, we're a little bit more on top of things with him just because he's younger, more impressionable and things like that. So, you know, listen, we're not on there every day, every minute, making sure everything is going right. Uh, we're doing check ins and we're making sure that things are appropriate and 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 we're you know, we, we talk about and make comments and discuss that, you know, just because you're seeing this online, number one, it may or may not be true. Uh, number two, it may or may not be giving you an accurate, you know, indication of what's really going on with somebody or, or their life. So it's just, um, you know, a happy photo album for most people. So you have to be aware of that and, and kind of instill that view in, in the kids so they understand that. Happy photo album is a great descriptor. <laughs> so what does it look what did it look like practically when you were uh, you know back when they were 12 13 just starting to dabble in were you having talks around the dinner table or were you checking their devices or did you put time limits on any of that stuff like what what, what is the hands-on stuff 
that you were. I doing? would say we were a little looser than uh, than most. Um, but again, I think part of that has to do with the fact that uh, you know their schedules, uh, because they play hockey, they're you know typically on the ice three, four, five times a week, um, and then on weekends very busy. So, you know, it's a it's a it's a tough dynamic because I, I don't think they accessed it as much as other kids who would have because they didn't have the time to do it. Um, but at the same time, it's also you know, in many regards, a communication tool for them to, you know, people complain that social media and having the phones, et cetera, are, you know, antisocial. And to many respects, um, it's their way of socializing these kids. I mean, that's their outlet to socialize. So it becomes very difficult. And, you know, one of the things that we learned early on with my older son is, you know, he was playing Xbox quite a bit on in the evenings and on weekends. And the reality was we weren't thrilled about it initially, but when we started thinking about it, it was probably a lot better than we thought because, you know, instead of him being out on a Friday night in a parking lot, drinking beer at 16 or 17, like many of the people he knew were, uh, he was online with his hockey team playing NHL or playing MLB and they were getting together and they knew that they had, they couldn't go out because they had a game Saturday morning. So they were, you know, they were socializing 10 or them or so on, on a, a video game playing. And that was their social outlet rather than going out and doing things where they get in trouble. They were doing things that they weren't getting in trouble. And then they were fresh and ready to go play the next morning. So, you know, everybody's different. If, if another parent whose kids didn't play hockey or weren't as active as my kids looked at my kids, they might say, Oh, they're on there too much doing too many things. But, you know, in, in our view, uh, you know, knowing what we know, I, I don't think that was the case. So I think every family is different to that, you know, in that regard. That's good. I appreciate you saying that because I think we tend to demonize or pathologize the involvement of video games and social media and mobile devices and all that stuff. And and that's it is individual and it does depend on the the person and the family. And and I I pr- really appreciate you saying that there is no blanket statement. There is no you know mechanical way to address this. It, it comes down to the individual parents to make those decisions, and that requires paying attention to your own children and your own family, right? And that's again more of that hard work. Uh, that that's required in you know all of parenting, uh, so that's that's a good point. It's really well taken. I want to switch back to AFSP. <clears throat> excuse me. Where so you you sit on the board, and it sounds like you're an active board member. You you do stuff with the finances. I think I heard you say a lot of people who participate in boards, and I've been a, several of them. They're there maybe just as a show or as a resume item, and they don't they don't necessarily do do much stuff besides uh, have a voice in a meeting. Talk a little bit about what got you involved to that level, and obviously you bring your your wealth of knowledge and so forth, but maybe compare and contrast your experience there, what the organization is doing, what it, it intends to do later on down the road, and where you see this all going as a, as a, a rubber meets the road type of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we were looking for a place to start raising money for my brother-in-law early on uh, in his name and in his memory. And 
we wanted to make sure we were doing it for an organization that we could get fully behind. So it was important to us to make sure that if we were going to ask somebody to write a check to an organization, that we felt super comfortable and were really committed to that organization. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about a year into us raising money and doing work for AFSP. Uh, the uh, the CEO at the time uh, invited us to come into the city to see their offices. And, I, you know, this was actually, I think, prior to me being on the board. And I, I went into the city and they were uh, they had an office located right on Wall Street. And they're now on Water Street. But we went up to their offices. I went into the CEO's office and you look out his window and there's a beautiful view of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I look at him and I said, well, I said, hang on a second. I'm like, I, I got a question to ask you. I'm like, how much do you pay for the space? And he was like, he's like, you know, we get that question a lot. I'm like, you know, because if we're raising money for donors, how much of their money is going to right. pay for this space? Right. And the reality was he was he 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 knew the question would probably come because it came from others. And, he, you know, it was definitely something he had been asked before. And the long and the short of it was there were some the, the building they were in was built by somebody in the uh, I believe in the 80s or the 70s where there were benefits for them, the landlord, having nonprofits in their building. They were getting huge tax breaks and kickbacks from from the uh, the city for doing that. So essentially, they were paying like the equivalent of like $30 or $32 a square foot. So for your in in Manhattan. So for your listeners out there, that's like the equivalent of what uh, Long Island rent prices at that time were probably more than what they were paying in the city. So to me, that made sense. I'm like, okay, you're not really, you know, spending an exorbitant amount. You're actually probably paying less than what you would pay in other parts. So I felt a lot more comfortable with that. So, you know, just to your point, I wanted to make sure that I was involved in an organization that was doing things the, the, the right way. And I always asked questions like that to make sure that the money we were raising uh, was going in the right direction and, and to the right causes. And, you know, when I started with them, I think we had something around like a seven or $8 million budget. We're up around 40 million now. Um, so the, the size of the organization has grown significantly as well as the stretch of what they're able to do because of the, the, the financial stability that they have. Um, so, you know, they are predominantly the, you know, looked at and leader in the mental health and suicide prevention space. Uh, when things need to be done, AFSP is usually one of those organizations that's leading the charge. Um, so one of the things that we're working on now is we're in the midst of what we call Project 2025, which we set an audacious goal, I guess, a couple of years ago to lower the suicide rate by 20% by the year 2025. And we're identifying certain key areas where the suicide rates are higher than average, higher than normal, and we're trying to steer resources and and um, and uh, education into those areas to help have an impact there. 
And that's really what it's all about. You know, my, my whole thing with being involved with them is to make sure that we're involved with an organization that's really at the forefront, making strides uh, in order to lower the suicide rate, help as many people who are suffering and families who have uh, lost a loved one to make sure that they're getting what they need um, in order to, uh, you know, move on and uh, continue the work that the organization's doing. So you guys are doing postvention too, which is a, a term that doesn't get used very frequently in the broader society. We hear about awareness and we hear about intervention uh, but and prevention, of course, but postvention is for the folks who have lost somebody, the, the suicide loss survivors, if you will, mm-hmm. and following up and make sure that they're they're wrapped in services and so forth. And I'm, I'm curious, I just want to make a plug for the organization I uh, serve called Walk the Talk America, we're doing this guns and mental health thing because firearm suicides are approximately 60-ish percent of of all suicides. And among those, the the veteran community, you know, takes its life at a much more frequent pace than the regular community to about one and a half times as much. And firearms are used about 72-ish percent of the time in the veteran community. So um, we're, we're really interested in that. And and AFSP has partnered with the National Shooting Sports Foundation, NSSF, that hosts the largest firearms show in the world called SHOT Show. It's, it stands for Shooting, Hunting, Outdoors Trade. And they always have a booth there, and we're very fortunate to be working with them uh, with, with this endeavor. So I'm curious, what what are the metrics? Because as we, as we watch suicide rates climb over the last several years, and some of that seems to be attributable to teen and youth suicide increasing, although veterans have stabilized and even gone down in some areas. Where are you guys working specifically and how do you know that you're achieving what you're aiming to achieve? Yeah. So I I think that, you know, the the first thing I would say to that, and I'm sure you know the numbers very well as well, but um, my understanding is that um, 2019, the, uh, the suicide numbers came down from the, the year before. And um, I have seen some reports, although the final numbers for 2020 won't be out until the end of 2021, the early indications that we're, we're seeing uh, are showing that, you know, things may have been on the decline for, um, for 20, for 2020 as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shapes out. I think, you know, to some degree, we think that the um, the numbers are going up. um, But I think what we're seeing and this is, again, not my there's no empirical evidence. This is just kind of anecdotally on my part. And that is that. Um, I think we're hearing about it a lot more. It's being reported about a lot more and it's being spoken a lot about more. Um, I don't know that it's actually happening more, but I think we're hearing about it more, which makes it seem like there's an increase. So hopefully those numbers at the end of this year will come out and, uh, you know, prove what the early indications are seeing. But you know, hopefully things are on the decline. Uh, There are, you know, Project 2025 is focusing in on these four critical areas, which are firearms, uh, to your point. Um, And again, we're not looking to get in the conversation about firearms themselves. It's just safety uh, with regard to them. Uh, Healthcare systems, uh, emergency departments, and correction systems. Uh, Those are basically the, the four main areas that we've identified uh, or the organization has identified where there are um, 
significantly high, uh, you know, rates or higher rates than normal uh, due to those areas. So, and each one's been reviewed and identified as far as how many lives could be saved if we were able to implement strategies. And we, we are in the process of putting a whole team together that's going to be evaluating our work in those areas and measuring it to see the impact that we are having and we have had in those areas. So those are predominantly those four areas of focus that we see as the uh, best areas for us to focus our time, attention, and resources in order to uh, you know, achieve the goal of reducing suicide rates by 20% by 2025. That's really cool. And I agree. I have seen some preliminary stuff on 2020 from several people uh, who I cross paths with in the community where the we all expected that the lockdowns were going to drive suicide rates. And it turns out maybe they didn't. And we're very curious to know why, if that, if those hold true, right. If they, right. if they hold true and they come to fruition, uh, the, the postmortem, oh, that's a bad term, but, but the postmortem on it is going to be a, an analysis of the, the reasons behind it. And then what we can use to continue driving down the numbers as well. You mentioned healthcare, and I'm wondering if there's some effort being made to communicate more rapidly the reports. Because I know in Nevada, we struggle with that. We're getting our suicide data like way too late to do anything about it. You know, it the rolling average was like two years after the, the data were co uh, collected, we would ever hear about them. And, and so I'm wondering if, if you are aware of any efforts to expedite that, to get systems talking to each other more rapidly. Yeah, that that I'm not aware of. I my my understanding is that um, the strategy with the healthcare systems is to uh, accelerate the the uh, the acceptance and adoption of risk identification and okay. suicide prevention strategies uh, that we know work. That would be um, like the zero suicide stuff, where you're you're training primary care physicians to to do screenings a little more frequently, that kind of thing. Correct. Yeah. Basically, you know, uh, you know, the goal would be to identify one out of every five people who are at risk in the large healthcare systems, uh, you mm -hmm. know, during a primary care or behavioral uh, health visit, and then providing them with short-term intervention and then better follow-up. Um, I believe the expectation is we would save about 9,200 lives um, if we were able to implement that successfully. That is significant when you're talking, you know, 48, 50,000 people, you're, I mean, it's 20%. That's, that's really good. Correct. That's great, actually. Um, I had a thought and then it just escaped my mind. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. But so, all right, let's 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 shift gears just a little bit more back into the, the financial thing. Uh, so for a guy who works with money, and it, it's, I think, something earlier triggered in my head. It was, it was a little bizarre to hear that you don't necessarily need to make it all about money when you're planning. And, and I think that's a little paradoxical. Because when, if I could speak for the the layperson, when we hear financial advisement, wealth management, that kind of thing, it's it's all about the money. Yep. But we were we covered earlier, you and I just discussing the idea that there's there's a peace of mind that can't be quantified or value or, or placed evaluation upon. How do you work with your clients with that philosophy of I guess we could loosely call it non attachment to money and finances? How do you, how do you coach people into, yeah, you worked, you worked your whole life, but you don't need more. <laughs> we just right. need to be comfortable. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And I think it's important, you know, to understand and have an idea. The money is just really an opportunity to allow you to do what you want to do. So I think the primary thing is for people to understand what they want to do and what they want their life to look like, and then back into how do we get there, you know, because for somebody who, you know, let's, let's say you have, you know, two families, similar profiles, but family one is planning on living off of $40,000 a year in retirement and family two needs 150,000. If they have the same financial situation today, one may be able to just inherently take on less risk than the other. Um, A lot of advisors would maybe invest them similarly because you might as well grow the money the same way. But you know what, if they need the peace of mind, then that may not make sense. So you really have to understand what the intentions are and what the goals are. Um, And to this point, you know, one of the areas we talk to clients a lot about, and like you said, a lot of people hear financial advice, and it's all about the money, wealth management, all about the money. And the reality is when it comes to retirement, for example, a lot has to do with the money, but just as much has to do with what is your life going to look like? Because, you know, we hear a lot in the news and the media about folks working longer. Uh, and the impression and the, the implication is that people are working longer because they have to. They need the money. Financially, they have to work. But I will tell you, the reality that we've seen is people are working longer but not because of the money aspect. They're working longer because they haven't done what they needed to do to put the infrastructure in place and what they need to have in place for when they retire to have a meaningful retirement. So what ends up happening is you work in the same job for 20, 30, 40 years, or you're working for that period of time, maybe not even the same job. You decide you're going to retire. Financially, you're fine. You, you know, your financial advisor, your wealth advisor says you're going to be okay. Well, you retire, and then all of a sudden, the first week, you have 40, 50, 60 hours that week that you didn't fill up, but you're bored to tears. Well, you know what? You might end up going back to work, even if it's part-time. Does that person need the money? No, they just didn't set up that infrastructure. So we talk a lot with folks about, you know, three, five, seven years before retirement, start thinking about what are you going to be doing with that 40 hours a week? Are you a golfer? Are you going to go give time to a nonprofit? How are you going to fill up that time Um, and make sure that it's going to be meaningful? Because most people, even if financially set, they don't want to sit on the couch in front of the TV for 50 hours a week. They just don't want to. They want to have some kind of meaningful dialogue and meaningful interaction with people, which, again, getting back to this conversation will only help not hinder their financial well, uh, their mental well-being. So why don't people just, uh, I don't know, I, I call it retirement loosely, but, but why don't they just start um... – going that direction sooner, like, you know, work like you don't need the money if, if they're capable and do the things that are pleasing and pleasurable. Cause I totally thought when you said that you were working with folks that, you know, end up, uh, working cause they don't need the money or working longer. I thought you were going to say it's because they enjoy what they do, but that wasn't necessarily the, the case. Um, why not, sh- you know, send that message. Why not shift people into finding their passions? Yeah, I mean, listen, that's certainly a, an option. I think the problem is, the, it, the again, going back to what we discussed earlier, the further you are out from retirement, 
the harder it is to make that change because there are so many variables that right. could happen and take place. So if you start making that change 20 years out, you may be on track today financially, but you know, as you get closer, maybe not because there are so many things that could potentially go wrong. So I think it's, it's an easier thing that as you get closer to that retirement date, it's easier to make those concessions and, and make that change a little bit earlier than expected. But to do that 20, 30 years, it's, it's a much more difficult thing. Because again, you know, this industry and what we do is not an exact science. It's part math and science, and it's part art for art form as well. Um, And being able to plan appropriately. So, you know, it's not like a set equation where one plus one will equal two. If that was the case, a lot easier to advise and a lot easier to make those recommendations. But, you know, it's an important thing. And, you know, you want people doing things. And, you know, even if it's slowing down five years, 10 years and moving into that environment where they're doing something that they love, uh, if they don't love what they're doing already, you know, it's uh, it's personal preference. Do you have conversations with people heading into retirement about the doldrums and the potential depression and the the suicide stats? Uh, I don't know about the suicide stats uh, but or the depression and doldrum, but we do talk to them about, you know, having something, an infrastructure in place in order to have uh, a meaningful life in retirement. And there are some people that have done it right. You know, they, they normally would golf, you know, a couple times a week and on weekends or their spouse spend time with them. They travel a lot. There, there are plenty of people that have that infrastructure in place. And then there are plenty of people that don't. Um, you know, or there's also people that are in the middle. They have enough of that infrastructure in place, but not enough to fill up that entire time gap. So maybe they're working 20 hours a week, you know, just to uh, to fill up that time because they want to have that meaningful interaction, keep the brain sharp. Um, and you know what? In this environment, it's even easier because you may not even have to leave your house in order to do that meaningful work. You might be able to do it remotely. So right. that change that changes the ball game. Also, do you? have any concerns about the, the, the like the the central banks constantly printing money now and like fiat and what may happen there with the emergence of cryptocurrency and like like do you have any opinions on that or is that a different so, podcast <laughs> yeah probably a much different podcast i mean listen there's also there there are definitely some concerns with what's going on with the the printing of of money, some of it is definitely warranted in order to keep things moving. Uh, there could be debate upon uh, whether they're doing that the right way or the wrong way. You know, it depends on, you know, how you look at it. But, you know, it depends on how things and how it goes from here and how that um, is going to be addressed and and resolved. I think, you know, as far as cryptocurrency goes, it's something we have conversations with clients about. It's nothing that we've bought or will buy for clients at this point. I think it's um, something that's getting a lot of press and a lot of interest because of the environment we're in. I just don't know that long-term it's a viable instrument in the form that it is today. Um, And there are aspects of it like blockchain, you know, yeah, there's so many different things. You have blockchain, you have cryptocurrency, and within cryptocurrency, you have, you know, three, four, a hundred different types. It's a, it's a very confusing and convoluted um, environment. And you have to be extremely careful about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and, and you have to understand what you're doing. Right. Yeah. I, I would be interested to talk more about that and just pick your brain a little bit. But 
that's not what I had you on here for. <laughs> so, maybe another day. So let's let's go back to um, you for a second. You host your own podcast. It's always nice talking to people who also do this because their answers you just wind them up and they and they talk. Um, talk a little bit about Midland Money Mindset and what you offer on there and where people can find you. Yeah, so uh, Midland Money Mindset, if you just go to midlandmoneymindset.com, that'll bring you right to our website where we host the uh, the podcast. It's also found on all of the uh, the podcast players that you can think of. You can find the show there as well. Um, you know, probably the biggest thing that people will be surprised about is it's very little to do with money. Maybe one out of every 10 or 15 episodes has to do with money. Uh, it's a lot more to do with mindset, a lot more to do with interesting entrepreneurs and how they've built their businesses. And also because uh, I'm a hockey player and my family is a hockey family, we have a lot of cool hockey guests, uh, which has been uh, amazing. Um, I think in a couple of weeks, we have have uh, Manon Rayom, who was the first and only female nice. goaltender to sign an NHL contract or female to sign an NHL contract, was a guest on our show. Uh, a couple uh, months ago, we had Elijah Holder, who's a uh, defensive back for the Denver Broncos. Uh, he wore for my cleats, my cause. He wore AFSP uh, uh, logoed cleats, uh, and then auction them off. So we have a, you know, my goal with the Midland money mindset is to educate people, introduce them to some interesting entrepreneurs and businesses. Uh, it always amazes me how people earn a living and make a business out of some crazy things. Uh, and sports is just a, a passion of mine. And I, I think the mind of athletes um, and business really intersect well and uh, work well together. That's super cool. I imagine that a lot of our listening audience will pick up on that because what I say frequently is, you know, the stuff doesn't do any good locked up in my head. We want to share it with the world so that we make the world a better place to live. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing with your show. And I would invite anybody who's listening to check out your show as well. I know I certainly will because I like those things. I like business. I like people who have opened businesses and listening to them. Uh, I like the Dave Ramsey uh, Entree Leadership Podcast. That's a fun one to listen to. And then, of course, sports. You can't can't go wrong with sports. Um, And we have some mental health. We're going to have the uh, chief medical officer from AFSP for Mental Health Awareness Month in May. She's one of our guests. Oh, cool. Very cool. I know a guy, if you ever need a guest, who owns a business and does mental health. May or may not be sitting. I, I'm right always across. open. I'm always open to guests. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll tell you what. Thanks. I really appreciate your time. Um, I have an appointment here in a few minutes that I've got to get off to, and um, I want a, an opportunity for people to to reach out to you. How do how do you how are you found besides at MidlandMoneyMindset.com where the podcast is? Yeah. So the easiest way is if you Google Midland Financial or Larry or Lawrence Sprung. Uh, yeah, I'm all over the place. So we're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, the only thing we're not on right now is TikTok. I still haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I will be, but uh, I'm very active on social media, always put out some great content and uh, always open to some great ideas. If anybody has anything to share, they could always uh, message me and be happy to listen to it. I appreciate you doing that. Uh, I think more of this kind of stuff that's made more readily available for the random person who's just interested is a good thing. I think that's we need more of it. And um, if you're interested, look up Lawrence. Do you go by Larry then? 
I go by Larry, but professionally I'm Lawrence everywhere. Okay. So, but that's uh, my mom named me Lawrence just in case I was a doctor, which uh, huh. I, I'm not. But uh, that's okay. Has I, this it's stuck? Has this been your only career? This has been my only career. Good I was you. actually pre-med in college, but that's a whole different story. Didn't work out that way. I started out as a chemical engineering <laughs> major, and that didn't work out either. Yeah. Well, Lawrence, Larry, Sprung, I certainly appreciate you being on our show with us. And I, I learned stuff. I always do. That's why I do that. I mean, I do it so I can share stuff, but I learned selfishly. And I enjoy sure. talking to people who have different things to say than I do. I get tired of hearing my own voice. So... um Thank you very much. I'm going to stay in touch with you because I have a head full of questions now that probably are uh, better suited for private conversations. But thanks. And on behalf of the Noggin Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.